0: Before we begin, just a disclaimer that the views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not the institutions they are employed by or the medical profession as a whole. We hope you enjoy the podcast.
1: Hi, we're Emily and Maddie, and we're two friends and junior doctors who are both working in medical education this year. We've decided to make a podcast about mentoring and positive role models because over the last year, the stresses and pressures of many different jobs have been high. Unfortunately, sometimes this leads to a breakdown of communication, teamwork and leadership. We think that by talking through the positive experiences of individuals in different fields, we can get people thinking about what qualities they seek in a role model for themselves and equally what would make them a good mentor for others. In each podcast, we interview someone from a different discipline and ask them to tell us about a time that they felt they had a positive mentor or role model and why. We hope some of these discussions can prompt us all to be better leaders and role models and can break down some of the barriers to improvement within different professions.
0: It's my great pleasure to introduce a very old friend of mine and now esteemed author, Olivia Yallop. Olivia and I went to school together and although she's always been a precocious writer from day dot, I'm so excited to have her here with us today to discuss the ever relevant um, and continuously changing topic of influencer culture. Um, Welcome, Olivia.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here.
0: And <laughs> um, thank you for joining us. Olivia Yallop is a digital strategist, trend analyst and writer specializing in social media, internet culture and the creator economy at Livy Yallop on Twitter and Instagram. Create the Internet is a definitive account of the creator economy. It takes a deep dive into the influencer industry, tracing its evolution from blogging and legacy social media, such as Tumblr, to today's world in which YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok dominate. Surveying the new media landscape that the rise of online celebrity has created, it is an insider account of a trend which is set to dominate our future.
1: So, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for coming on. Um... We're going to start with the question that we asked everyone so far that comes on the podcast, um, which should hopefully lead into some conversations about um, your book and and all of the other things that that Mads has just mentioned in your bio. So who is your role model um, and what qualities do they have?
2: This is a really good question. I had to think for a little while about who uh, a singular role model would be. I would probably point more to a like group of internet culture writers who have um, emerged over the past maybe five years. Um, People like Patricia Lockwood, Lauren Euler and um, Gia Tolentino, who used to be at the New Yorker and has written a book, which lots of people may probably have read called Trick Mirror. Um, And the reason I admire this particular group of internet writers who are all kind of loosely interconnected is because... Um, writing about the internet tends to fall into one of two camps it's either very kind of tech optimistic silicon valley fueled um, visions of the future and a kind of grand declaration of the way in which you know algorithms are going to make our lives better or the gig economy is is an inherently uh, good and uh, amazing thing which is going to revolutionize all of our lives or it tends to be really kind of techno-pessimist kind of scaremongering about dystopian futures and, um, you know, how living in the metaverse is going to be a nightmare for us all. Um, and what I think that I love about this particular group is that they have a much more sensitive uh, approach to writing about the internet Um, and also particularly their experiences growing up with the internet I think we're all roughly the same age um, Mm -hmm. and we're really the first generation who've had that really embodied experience of the internet so growing up um, maybe we knew a time before the internet we just knew a time before the internet but then as we've matured and developed our own adolescence has mirrored the adolescence of the internet itself so it's a really interesting perspective to be writing from um and I think they just have a they've got a really great approach that's kind of intellectual and academic but also um really human and real and speaks to that kind of
0: collective experience that we all have growing up online yeah that's really interesting you make a really a really good point that we've kind of grown up as the internet's grown up as well. So I feel like we've developed and been watching this kind of develop in real time. And out of those writers that you talk about and those two kind of like polarizing views, would you say that you sit in one particular camp?
2: I am trying to sit in the middle. I think um, it's really interesting when you're writing about internet culture and communities, like I have been doing for many, many years under different guises as, you know, a trend uh, analyst or trend forecaster or, kind of professionally for brands, um, you have to try to really careful line between kind of engaging and participating in communities whilst also being able to maintain some kind of critical distance. But that's quite hard mm. given the niche nature of internet culture and the way that you kind of fall down in little rabbit holes, the internet is yeah. to segregate into different spaces. And so it's difficult to investigate a space and to really understand it without to some extent becoming involved with it. Um, so I think I, I try really, really hard, particularly with the treatment of influences in this book, um, to not come down on the kind of, um, classic narrative that we see, which is that influences are frivolous and, um, unworthy of cultural study. And, um, they're kind of no more than, than, um, you know, white women in, in Lululemon leggings, like flogging, (laughs) um, or the kind of, um, Uh, the kind of reverse which is the kind of internal influence industry narrative that you know influences are changing the world I'm kind of trying to tread that that distance between that take that critical path between those two views um yeah and something someone said I think it was possibly a review in the Guardian or in the Times which said that uh the reason that they think the book works is because I have professional experience working in the influencer industry but also mm-hmm. the necessary critical distance of only having 500 followers on Instagram which was a bit of a backhanded compliment <laughs> but I really I think I thought that was a really good observation about um, my position within the industry in and the way that I can be kind of commenting on things whilst also being like, Oh God, this is all a bit odd, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose you don't really have a vested interest as much do you, because as you say, you know, like somebody that had as part of the 1 million followers club probably does have some sort of vested interest and they wouldn't really be able to immerse themselves in an almost kind of like distanced way in the way that you did when you were doing the research for your book.
2: Yeah, I think I was I was lucky that my um, kind of personal positioning just happened to be right to tell this kind of story. Yeah, um, I think it's also worth noting that being an influencer is like an incredibly defensive position because the term influencer has carries such stigma. And there is mm-hmm. you know, a whole negative identity that's built around the word influencer. In my book, I talk about there have been studies that have asked influencers, you know, do you identify with the term influencer? And so many don't yeah. the rise yeah. of the phrase creator yeah. as an alternative. Um, so if you're an influencer, you're kind of already, you're already in a defensive position. You're kind of always trying to um, kind of validate what you do because mm. being an influencer is seen as such an an invalid job and yeah. uh, like yeah. a delegitimized form of work. So um, there's something that you, as an influencer, you're always kind of trying to uh, to protect yourself or trying to prove yourself, yeah.
0: which I think can yeah.
2: make it very hard to write a book like this from that position. Yeah.
0: I find yeah I find it so interesting like there was a particular part in your book where you're speaking to a guy and he's a so so called cool, like influencer and he says to you you're like what are you going to do tomorrow and he's like oh i'm going to shoot content but it's nothing major and then he kind of divulges what he's doing and actually it requires a huge amount of work staging planning and actually you kind of talk about how their job is to appear jobless and to create this kind of like void of jealousy and highlight real when actually a huge amount of work goes into it. And I'm gonna be completely transparent and, and maybe embarrass myself, but I do watch Molly Mae's YouTube videos quite religiously. As, as you should. She's the gold um, standard for influencing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think part of it is kind of like I'm from a social science perspective, like I'm really, really interested, but also I just kind of like clothes and I'm just gonna be shallow and say that. Um, but <laughs> But like, I I find it really, really interesting. And she's very open, isn't she, Molly Mae, about the amount of work that goes into being an influencer. And I find that's what kind of, I think, in my mind, sets her apart from others, because she will sit there with no makeup and a spot on her face. And she'll tell you, right, today, I'm going to go shoot content. And actually, I've had a really long day, and I'm really tired. And we've done X, Y, and Z. And I've traveled, you know, from Hale to the inner city, Manchester. And, and I think she kind of like, shines light on not the ugly side but just like the more raw element of being an influencer and actually that it is a job and it's not like a hobby or like a you know a fake job as a lot of people yeah Yeah.
2: there's a lot of you there's I mean there's a lot to unpack there it's interesting that we're having this this conversation I'm having this conversation with uh some doctors because the classic thing that is said about influencing is like oh they're not saving lives they're not doctors Mm -hmm. it's not a real job like being a doctor and so it's really funny to have you know you guys as doctors say say you know you think influencing is, is real work um because that kind of totally collapses that thing that's that's traditionally said uh, about content creators but yeah the the job of influencers is to appear jobless as i put it in the book mm-hmm. um they're trapped in this strange double bind where they need to appear the job is to appear to be having fun all the time
0: mm-hmm. and
2: um making that feel seamless and not being able to see the kind of machinery that goes in underneath is doing is pulling it off successfully um mm-hmm. and so that's kind of what creates this uh kind of catch-22 of um influencers not being able to reveal the work that goes into it and then people saying oh that's not a real job because you're just taking pictures mm-hmm. and so it, it kind of fuels itself um and it's worth also saying that um this is one of the reasons why influencing is a an industry which is very very ununionized and there isn't great there isn't particularly strong labor representation because it's so easy to, to dismiss this as as kind of not being a real job and that plays into broader conversations around you know platforms encouraging behaviors from users such as producing vast quantities of user-generated content that they need to to prop up their platforms, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, all need influencers to be creating content because that's the basis on which their business model operates. Um, But they also need that to not be seen as work because if it's suddenly classified as work, you get into conversations about, oh, okay, or actually um, do platforms have... uh, a responsibility to protect influencers as workers or do they have a responsibility to pay people who are producing content on their behalf mm. if you think about social media you can or I, well, I look back and think about social media over the 2010s and it seems like a massive almost like a massive scam we have all collectively billions and billions of us been laboring online mm. for free for yeah. Facebook, youtube yeah. by creating content by posting yeah. selfies we've we've been Basically, running these to, businesses yeah. for them yeah. without seeing anything in return. Only a small amount of people, influencers, have managed to capture value from doing that. Everyone yeah. else is just blogging and tweeting yeah. and whatever is not seeing a cent. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, there there are really interesting kind of macro conversations that link to this idea of the the micro conversation around the influencer yeah. as being a worker. There's just so yeah. much,
1: there's just so so much to cover, and I think, like you say, it's because it's an influencer. It's not just on job, isn't it? There's such a vast sort of variety of different influences. So you have got like your Molly Major, Zoe Suggs, like big, big, like household names that make content and make millions from that. But they also all have like spin off businesses that we might not know about in the back like in the background but they don't choose to to show that you've got like your ex-Love Island stars Mm. that make money selling stuff primarily on Instagram and they perhaps are the ones that portray this perfect lifestyle whereas you have got I think difference between different platforms that they choose to use I think traditional YouTube stars like the ones I just mentioned Molly May and Zoella if they choose to do vlogs for example Mm. they they tend to show more of the realistic side of of being yeah. of, of what they do don't they whereas I think Instagram as a platform doesn't lend itself that well to that no it, it's more one picture of the you know someone in a outfit that's looking great with their hair and makeup done and that's the yeah. of that perfect life so I think you've got differences between platforms you've got differences between the size and scale of the influencer or creator and it's mm. interesting the point you made Livy, about us being medics because you've also got lots of doctors online that are trying to be influencers now yeah. um, as well. So, you know, particularly on Instagram, um, there's quite a few people who are doctors who work as in, in, as in clinical practice in the NHS um, as doctors who are making these sort of side hustles almost in producing yeah. sort of medical influencer pages to try and promote sort of health promotion and, and mm. things like that. Um, about various different topics so there's just there's just so much to cover isn't there and how did you figure out what to put into your book and and what to what not to what how did you decide what to focus on?
2: Yeah really good point about the medical influences I would love to come on to talk about that in more detail because that is there's that's a rich text there's a lot to unpack there
1: <laughs> yeah. Um,
2: but yeah it's it was really hard I think um, I was writing with the awareness that there hadn't been a bit a book written about influencer culture before my book so there's this kind of weight of responsibility of wanting to address the whole market in a way that feels balanced and equal but of course there is an influencer out there for everyone there is an influencer for almost Mm -hmm. every lifestyle category and increasingly not just lifestyle categories but also things like you know medicine or there are legal influences there are farm influencers who vlog mm. like plowing fields and stuff and so really it's,
0: that yeah, that's amazing so I need to adjust my uh, highlight reel <laughs> yeah
2: <laughs> so it, it it kind of becomes like how do you write a book you're effectively trying to write a book about about life it it becomes really really difficult if you try and address the full breadth of, of influencing um I wanted to make sure I kind of set myself a little plan I wanted to make sure I'd covered off the main uh, thematic categories like fashion, beauty, lifestyle, mm-hmm. family, fitness, food, but then also to make sure that I was showing some of the diversity of the burgeoning industries as well. So like farmfluencing, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. um, yeah, or being a legal influencer, or being a political mm-hmm. influencer—all these kind of rising categories within uh, influence culture—and also gaming. That's another thing I should say. So um, I'm not in the gaming industry, but gaming gaming and influence or gaming and 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 creators are Mm. a massive massive intersection which I kind of I just touched on I'm really glad I got the opportunity to touch on it just to show Mm. that you know to flag that it's there and it's a massive thing um it's almost like its entirely own ecosystem you have to kind of you'd have to write a separate book about that um but yeah I I just wanted to make sure that I kind of covered the key to give people a a lay of the land to to um make sure that they'd Uh, appreciate the kind of scope and scale and see that it's not just beauty gurus contouring on camera um or yeah or or the, the women in leggings uh it there's a lot more to it than that um and even now i mean the the kind of hottest influencer of q4 2021 is uh, employees from MS Romford who've gone viral on TikTok for lip syncing to like Backstreet Boys and <laughs> so yeah it's I yeah. mean it's the kind of scope and scale of what could be considered influential is massively expanding um, yeah. so that is I think an ongoing challenge and w- one of those things that that is meaning that it's expanding is yeah the rise of the medical, medical influencer and um, that's been a huge huge trend on TikTok in the past year wonder why what what massive global event could be taking place that means that we've seen a rise in medical
0: influences I wonder what I I know I I guess that kind of brings us on to the pandemic and you know medical influencing and I think it's really difficult to sit on the fence in this particular area I think every medic will have will either be on one side or the other that either it's a a force for good or it's a force for bad and but it's not just kind of doctors that seem to be you know, putting themselves in, in the centre of how am I going to influence because we're in the middle of a global pandemic or because I've now been given a platform. But it's also kind of people that already had a lot of influence to begin with, yeah. but they've utilised the the situation that the pandemic puts in. So, you know, for example, Joe Wicks became, a, a he was already famous and he was already an influencer, but he became like, you know, one of the most popular influencers on youtube through his pee with joe videos physical
2: yeah, so fitness and, and yeah. that, he
0: would have never been able to do that if we weren't in the middle of a lockdown and we we couldn't go to the gym um, yeah. and he really utilized that um and i think that's that's a particularly interesting thing to to unpick you know um from from a very bad and a very depressing situation I think a lot of influencers did bring a lot of positivity to people's lives because they were stuck at home Um, and whether that's for personal gain or not you know that's kind of by the by but um, it's just quite an interesting thinking point
2: yeah, absolutely. It it there was a sense within working within the influencer industry when the pandemic hit that finally this was an opportunity for influencers to kind of step up and prove mm-hmm. that they are good for mm-hmm. things other than just selling, you know, links to discount makeup brushes and random crap from Amazon. Um yep. that they could kind of use their influence and use their platform for social good. Mm-hmm. And so it was a real kind of proof case for the influencer industry to say, like, look, influencers are a force for good. We can um, tell people to stay at home. We can tell people to wear masks. We can yeah. urge people to go and get vaccinated, etc., etc. Et yeah. So there was a big kind of outpouring of support, and there were specific instances in which influencers used their platforms to directly raise money for the NHS. I don't know whether you guys saw any of the, the the results of this uh or, or knew of this but it was definitely a kind of big thing yeah so i i just have some notes here but um yeah fleur de force who's a big british youtuber yeah. she part that kind yeah. of um uh that og wave of you of youtubers she did like yeah. a bloggers for nhs uh auction mm-hmm. and had about three million people kind of tuning in um saffron barker another um og british youtuber did uh youtubers mm-hmm. for nhs heroes campaign so yeah there's yeah. a lot there were a lot of kind of um, uh, a lot of awareness raising efforts, and then a lot of actually tangible mm-hmm. material resources raising efforts. Because I did yeah. see a lot of those kind of you know influencers doing a selfie, holding a sign, saying like "We love you NHS." And I was just, this yeah. is a bit weak. I'm sorry. <laughs> who, I've seen your back end, and I know that you can make you know X money by posting a link yeah. in X amount of time. I want to see they more dear. than a yeah. selfie. <laughs> yeah, that's so, very very. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you're right. It was a good it was a good moment for influencers to kind of prove that they are more than just capable of selling you on stuff.
0: Yeah, Yes, yeah. yeah, definitely. Position. They
1: were in a fortunate position, weren't they, where they could just carry on doing the work that they were doing even before yeah. the pandemic. So they weren't as, as affected, I imagine, by... People, you know, lockdowns and people not being able to go into work, as other people who had to mm. go into work for other jobs. I mean, I'm yeah. sure some elements of it would have been difficult to do formal photo shoots and things like that. Yeah. But most of the work of creating content in their homes, in their bedrooms, could could yeah. still carry on, couldn't it? Yeah, uh, that, yeah. It's, some kinds of influencers could
2: travel. Influencers really really suffered mm. and yeah, yeah and some of them kind of came out and said like look we're having a really really hard time and they were mm. widely mocked for, for and you know it was cast as like oh influencers complaining that they can't go to Bali blah blah yeah, blah right. But it, that's actually like not the case if you're you know a parent livelihood. Then, yeah, yeah exactly and that equally speaks to the way that yeah just what they do is delegitimize like if you, yeah. you know, you're just saying you just don't believe that that they should be able to earn money and you're not happy with the way yeah. they're earning money um yeah, yeah. yeah so on, on the whole yes yeah. compared with i guess you guys who were massively disrupted then uh yeah it was probably a bit of a, an easier ride for them
1: yeah but it's, different. Yeah. it's it's you take that example you wouldn't say like oh well all of the pilots and like airline staff that now are losing their jobs because no one's flying because of lockdown mm. we were all like sad for them but how is that different to like a travel blogger or a travel writer who makes yes. money from going to these places and writing about them which then in- ultimately influences us and where we go on holiday and the places that we stay and the things mm. that we do it's mm. looking at it in a different way and I think it, one of the very first things you mentioned Livy was that there is a stigma around influences and that's mm. um I think yeah it's it's although it's been Lockdown and the pandemic's been a good opportunity for them. It's sort of almost, almost highlighted that because there was a big thing on the news of an influencer going somewhere like Dubai or something, and mm-hmm. um when we were all supposed to be in lockdown and all of the controversy surrounding that. Yeah. Um, so it's it's I think it's it's further created that divide almost. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it was
2: it was very. I found that a very annoying piece of coverage. She was saying, "Be kind." This so just to recap on this situation. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of influencers fled to Dubai during the pandemic because Dubai had very very lax rules around partying and lifestyle and many Mm. lifestyle influencers felt pressure to keep up a certain kind of brand because you know pretty little thing deals were still happening you know it wasn't but how how can you do you know party clothes from Mm. your home or whatever um I mean there's a lot to unpack there but I won't go into it um and Mm. so one of these, an influencer, had gone to Dubai, and then I think she'd been fined on the way back, or she was mm. calling in from Dubai, kind of defending her right to be there and saying she, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. she was being trolled for having gone to Dubai in a pandemic, and she was just saying, you know, oh, be kind, be kind, and it's just it was such a deflection of kind of mm. I think personal responsibility during the pandemic. I definitely yeah. don't, I wouldn't defend influencers' rights to to fly to Dubai, but um, yeah, that yeah. was kind of an annoying situation. Oh I think it didn't yeah. give a particular good. Yeah. view of the industry
0: and I think a lot of the things that I used to think before I read your book one of them was that basically influencers they kind of like absolve their right to be upset by anything that's said about them on the internet because they put themselves on the internet they make their profile public and they put themselves you know they put either opinions or pictures you know they kind of put themselves onto a platform just ready to be Judged and analysed by the public. But actually, and I used to think, well, you know, especially during the pandemic, they're infallible, they're untouchable, you know, they're going to keep working regardless of, you know, a global crisis. Um, But actually, I think that they are very susceptible to certain things. One of them being, as you've already mentioned, you know, travel influences or food influences, you know, people or like food critics that mainly portray themselves on Instagram. Um, They weren't able to go to restaurants, but also, cancel culture which is something that you know I think I only learned that word like within the last year but it's a really really interesting thing to think about because it's pretty terrifying actually and um would probably have huge lasting impacts on somebody's mental health if someone is just constantly like trolling them on the internet and mm-hmm. um, the, the barrage of abuse that people get you know everything from sexist racist xenophobic abuse like it is really and and it's it's by people that hide behind blank profiles um and it's quite terrifying and these people they don't actually have the option of taking themselves off the internet um because it's their it's their livelihood so yeah they are kind of in a catch-22 aren't they yeah Um, absolutely
2: and it's interesting because influencers are often kind of championed as you know they're celebrities without gatekeepers they're select they you know they're real celebrities they've got an authentic connection to their audience they don't have you know big um uh talent contracts and manager, sure. lots of them do have managers, but there's this image that they, they're they kind of, they're not like Hollywood celebrities or like big pop stars or whatever who are very, mm-hmm. they, they've gone through this like institution of celebrity that exists in Hollywood and in record labels mm-hmm. and in all of that kind of thing. Um, but people forget that if you remove that framework, you also remove a lot of the safeguards that surround people who are mm-hmm. in the public eye in order to protect them from some of the things that are bad about being in the public eye. And one of those things is, yeah, dealing with the vast volume of, of people kind of constantly giving you feedback on every aspect of your life and identity.
0: So yeah.
2: when people say, you know, Oh, it's great influences. You know, we've I've got such direct connection to, to influences. That's also simultaneously the best and worst thing about it. It's yeah. kind of, yeah, it's, as you say, it's a catch 22. It's, it's um it's simultaneously, the reason why people like them and also a massive, massive, cause of frustration because I spoke particularly with mumfluencers who found that they feel very trapped because if they don't share information about their Mm. family online um, Mm. then they're not going to earn money or then their followers are going to start digging for it then what they do share gets criticized and then if they change you know it's it's kind of constantly you're almost sort of you've done this kind of deal with the devil when you've kind of established yourself as a family influencer where you know, pulling back results in a large amount of stress, pushing yeah. forward results in a large amount of stress. And I often think that you, know, particularly mum fluences are often demonized in the mm-hmm. media. It's this like mm-hmm. idea that you're totally irresponsible and you've, you know, you've decided to monetize your child's life. I often actually look at them more as, more as kind of victims, I would say, of a system that has encouraged them or maybe presented this, uh, yeah this lifestyle option to them as something that is you know attractive and sustainable and you know a viable option for 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 yeah. making money. One of the um one of the influencers I interview in my book um was pregnant at 16 and um was originally wanted to make content. She connected with other young teen mums in the mm-hmm. online community because she didn't know anyone else who was pregnant at her age, needed to connect, was you know desperate for to, to share her experience yeah. People and then thought oh yeah I want to start sharing as well to be able to kind of um, to, to to share my experience with other people and to kind of genuinely build a community and very well-meaning this isn't someone who was yeah. like right, I'm gonna monetize you know monetize my child um, and then it all just kind of gradually spiraled and then she was saying you know I, w- I was so young and I c- I couldn't think of ways to support my family my my b- yeah. very burgeoning family of, of two yeah. um, you know and this platform seemed to be the, the the best way that I could secure a stable future for my daughter this is I can make much more money doing this than I can working yeah. in a in a job you know part-time because I've got to do childcare so yeah, yeah it's it's interesting I think always these situations where we focus on the individual and, and focus on the mum influencer um, as like the agent of, of responsibility is is often mm. I think misleading and we should kind of look one of the theses of the book is that we should be looking at influencers not as instances of individual agents but more as a kind of product of the systemic forces around
0: them yeah um, so yeah. yeah yeah very very good point and really interesting I think one of the things that you mentioned in your book as well was that influencers kind of like they collapse this boundary that we've always been told to keep um which is you know keeping your public and your private life separate yeah. um and I think you know a lot of the people that I follow on Instagram whether influencers or not I think that is that platform kind of perpetuates that, doesn't it? That you do have to just post everything online and that people have to know everything about your life in real time. Um, and it's it's quite scary. And I think, I mean, some influencers have actually kind of been victims of that sort of thing happening. Um, uh, an influencer recently was um, involved in like an 800,000 pound burglary because you know she was posting that she was in London and that her boyfriend was in London. And then this kind of organized crime group Rob the house, uh, you know, and and that's that's one of the unfortunate byproducts of of having to have a constant reel and stream of your life um, online. Yeah, like you're laughing if you think that all the choices you
2: make to share things on the internet entirely come from you. You're they're absolutely yeah. massaged by the platforms and like social forces around you. Um, yeah, yeah. So this idea that like oh well if they don't like it they should just stop posting is is
1: yeah is yeah. I think a bit ridiculous. I think yes. it's the same, we were talking about like cancel culture and trolling and all of that stuff earlier. It's the same, I was gonna bring that point up earlier as well. It's, and Livy, you said like, we take away the safeguards from tra- around traditional celebrities and we, mm-hmm. because we think that they're more accessible to us on social media. And part of that's great, isn't it? Like you you want to know, it's our like innate desire to like know more about famous people and to know more about celeb- like this fascination with the celebrity and knowing more about them and all of a sudden it was like well now there's someone who's really famous but actually i can go on instagram and find out what they're having for their dinner and (laughs) you know that would never happen with a traditional film star celebrity i don't know what like scarlett johansson's doing on the weekend but like i can these are like famous people that i can find out like what's going on and that's the benefit to it but on the other side you've you've got that idea that they've opened themselves up and you mentioned taking away those safeguards but that's not only through people thinking they are entitled to the right to comment on parts of their lives, yeah. and the choices that yeah. they're making. But it's also that physical security, safety of problem of, actually, if you are putting things online, you're surprised by how much stuff in the background of videos, photos, people can use to piece together where you live, you know, bank details, all sorts of personal information. And and yeah, it's it's just, there's just so much to it. There's just so many interfaces, isn't there?
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, for sure. There's um, a really upsetting, it, multiple upsetting in, in instances of influencers being the victims of stalking, because there's just,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, I imagine easy to fixate on targets because they're very visible. Mm-hmm. Um And often there is quite an unsympathetic response because the people are saying, yes. oh, well, you sh- just don't put this information online. But again, over, overly simplified, I think, um, and, yeah, unfair to people who who should expect to be able to share something about themselves without that being taken yeah. away, I think. There's yeah. levels of of permission, um, and, yeah, and, and that's all tangled up. It's not just a kind of social choice about what you share. It's all tangled up with the architecture of the platforms themselves and what they incentivize mm. you to do and the kind of levers and mechanics that they have um, for sharing you know in in, in different mm-hmm. ways so um, Instagram stories being for example disappearing after 24 hours has created an entirely different that was a real um, stake in the ground for a shift in what people were prepared to share on Instagram mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. the feed felt very definite uh-huh. it wasn't going to disappear the moment yeah. you introduce stories you then you're opening the the, the floodgates for a wave of increasingly personal and intimate content, you know, sobbing stories, saying someone's broken up with you, yeah. um, you know, drunk things that you posted are then gonna disappear. I um, mean, yeah. suddenly influencers felt like they could share a lot, lot more. And that was actually like a, a something that was instigated, not necessarily by themselves, but kind of encouraged by the platform. Um, and so, yeah it's, yeah, it's not always the case that, you know, it's, it's someone just saying today, I'm going to set out to share this. And another thing yeah. I found when I was speaking to people is that um, it's definitely a process of conditioning. People maybe st- started off being willing to share a certain amount of information. And then over time, they found that the kind of demands of the market, the demands of their audience, the effort to keep up with the algorithm or an effort to keep up with the kind of um, uh, statistics that they expect to see in terms of likes and shares and engagement, Mm -hmm. um, meant that over time, they shared way, way, way more than they thought they would ever gonna be happy to share at the beginning. So Mm -hmm. it's not as simple as kind of you make one decision and then you stick to it.
0: Yeah. yeah it's a bit of a catalyst isn't it for like some sort of crazy chain reaction where you feel like you need to keep going on the hamster wheel um yeah. and and one of the things that you talked about um in your book was like who influences the influencers mm. like and you drew a parallel to the tech industry um and you know said that you know what what people do in the tech industry is they kind of just blow everything up and then and then wait for something to happen um, and there's no guidance really and there's no user manual and like who provides these people with advice so for example if somebody's posting a constant highlight reel on on their Instagram story and you know where they are at all times and then they're the victim of a burglary does anyone sit down with these people and say you need to get insurance or maybe this isn't safe or maybe you should get a bodyguard like who advises these people you know because in every single job you've got HR you've got psychological well-being and support you've got you know there are all these kind of like instruments that people have to hand, to aid them when they're put into a new environment. And that's what they should have, they should have support and it should be structured and it should be regulated. But like who regulates these people? Like who's there to control, you know, to make sure that they're they're safe and that their well-being is looked after nobody. And I think that they've made them, and unfortunately they're kind of like devoid of this because they put themselves out on the internet and nobody respects their job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, there's no HR
2: for social media. Yeah, it's really interesting. There's a couple of things to say here. The first is that, this is a role where increasingly um, we're starting to see managers become more and more prevalent. But you have to be mm. a certain size and have a certain income to, for a manager to be... Yeah to make financial sense so there is necessarily always going to be a segment of the market who don't have a manager and Mm -hmm. a good manager would be there to help you with strategy with you know scheduling with brand deals to maybe lift a lot of the the kind of um burden of of administration or maybe also help you kind of step back maybe you're going through a crisis and actually what they need to do is kind of take your phone off you Mm -hmm. or maybe you know yeah, you're having a problem with being cancelled, and they're there to kind of advise you on on, yeah. on how to respond. So there is that kind of manager uh, or a- manager or agent uh, influencer relationship. However, managing slash being an agent is a totally can be a totally cowboy industry. There are some great places like you know CAA that represent influencers, but only the really really top ones. Um, there are a lot of kind of individual cowboys who are going around kind of managing or agenting for influencers. Um, who are actually doing a terrible, terrible job and are doing things like scamming their clients or, you know, not doing duty of care. Um, So that's Mm -hmm. a whole kind of, a whole other world. And there are a lot of very kind of viral stories of big public fallouts between influencers and agents or influencers and managers. So if you're interested, have a Google. Um, (laughs) The other thing I should say is like, this is where the the kind of influencer labor movement comes in. Um, So in the past year, we've seen a big surge in, um, interest amongst influencers for unionizing. So there are a couple of different influencer experiments with unionizing. There's something called the Influencer Union in the UK and um, the American Influencer Union in the US and Hollywood okay. SAG-AFTRA, um, which is the Screenwriters Artists Guild. And then I can't remember what AFTRA stands for. Um, that's okay. a kind of Hollywood, uh, Hollywood union um, has mm. expanded to include TikTokers, YouTubers, et cetera, in there in what they do. Um, so that's kind of one attempt to address this total lack of yeah of of guardrails for the influence industry Um, Mm -hmm. and then also I should say that ongoing at the moment as we are literally recording this um, the UK is holding its first parliamentary inquiry committee into influencer culture um, and a range of academics and uh, influencers and people related to the influence industry um, are coming forth and giving testimony about the state of of influencer culture and that's covering everything from kind of um bullying and harassment and trolling right the way through to kind of like labor laws and um regulation around uh for example like child influencers and how long can people work for and what constitutes like your legal rights around around work um so yeah there, there are some kind of tentative early steps being made in the right direction but you know people og influencers have been doing this since you know the late 2000s so yeah yeah, since myspace since tumblr so that's a really 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 long time to have gone on in a very very unregulated space and you see the amount of influencers who are burning out the amount of influencers who are having kind of mental health crises or who are publicly having to step back from platforms um i think is testament to the fact that this is really really overdue
1: yeah, because it changes yeah. all the time, doesn't it? So all of that started off just a few people having a blog and connecting with other people as a way to make friends and um, do something different outside of their typical job. And then, as we said, it's coming up to the point now where you know there's going to have to be laws and you know organisations to regulate this. But we saw a big thing of that come in, didn't we, with advertising with all the, the laws about the. Regulation, yeah, and advertising of, yeah, e- expressing what was an advert, who was mm-hmm. paid to promote a product, whether yeah. they, you know whether they were being paid, whether they'd been sent a product to to test or try, um, and I think it's just interesting for to think about how influencers have had to constantly be adapting and changing to all of the new regulations and things that have yeah, been through, um. I was just gonna say yeah so the first um instance
2: of youtube of influencers being regulated is in 2014 with zoella Mm -hmm. and um a an oreo race to lick to the middle of an oreo challenge which was turned out to be sponsored by modelers not um not a just kind of organic thing that people did for fun um and yeah since then we have had successive waves of advertising regulation Um, There's something called the ASA, which is the Advertising Standards Authority that regulates um, ads in the UK. You occasionally see their adverts, actually adverts, for the ASA in the newspaper that say things like, have you read anything in this newspaper that you consider to be kind of unlawful, misleading, etc. reported to the ASA. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when I used to work in advertising, you'd always live in fear of someone ringing up and saying, oh, there was a dog jumping on a trampoline in your advert. And Um, we think this that our dog might do the same or so you know you need to take this down and then you know you'd have to pull your ad offline because it was deep oh my goodness I did not realize
0: that was Um, the extent yeah
2: yeah yeah. so and the ASA are like quite effective at at removing traditional ads however the ASA are or they're quite good at regulating traditional ads what they are not good at is regulating digital the digital space and I think it kind of speaks to the fact that we look to the ASA and advertising as the kind of body or instrument through which to regulate the influencer Mm. economy, not for example, like, I don't know, labor laws. It's interesting that we, we, we viewed, I think it speaks to the way that we view influencers just as a product of advertising, Mm. not as actually like workers and consider them to be, you've got the advertising industry, then you've got digital industry that sits under that you've got social media Mm -hmm. industry that sits under that. And then you've got, uh, social media and uh, like influencer marketing as the very kind of smallest yeah. bit um but that just fundamentally misunderstands influencers yes we originally had influencers who were just kind of doing ads but now influencers run businesses influencers mm-hmm. employ yeah. people influencers are entrepreneurs you know they're almost like small and medium like smes small and medium enterprises yeah. rather than or even large enterprises in many cases rather yeah. than human billboards and I think we need to move yeah. beyond that this understanding of influencers as an appendage of the advertising industry if we want to properly regulate yeah. and create a safe environment
0: yeah yeah and th- they say that you have to have is it like if you have over 30,000 followers then you are then liable and to like the regulations of the advertising um industry and you have you have to put ad if you're going yeah, to consider pay- an influencer gifted. yeah
2: yeah Yeah. it's and it's just very murky I mean they do a lot of the things that they bring out kind of fundamentally misunderstand the way that influencer marketing works so um there was a bit of a fuss a couple of years ago because the ASA declared that you had to put ad against something that you'd been gifted when actually influencers a lot of the time haven't asked to be gifted things and it's like Um, so there was there was a big kind of that put a big um a big uh, stake in the heart of the gifting industry that has really yeah. changed the way that um, the influencer gifting works. But, um, and there was some there was some kind of rumbles that you would have to declare on tax, everything that you've been gifted. Mm. And it, it was just, you know, things that that hadn't really considered, but it didn't really demonstrate an understanding of the ways that influencers work yeah. and kind of appeared to crack down very, very heavily on things which maybe shouldn't be cracked down on mm. and miss massive other kind of uh ways in which influencers would would work with brands. So yeah, it's I mean I, I feel for them a bit because they've been tasked, they're kind of it's left at their gate, at their door, you know, here ASA, you sort this out, but they're not the most effective body for this. And I'd also just think there's there's too much to handle, it needs a dedicated task force looking at the influence industry separately. Yeah. Um, yeah and considering it in a more intersectional way than just as as advertising
0: Mm, yeah and I mean I guess one of the things that I've been thinking about and had conversations you know with other people about is the the concept of responsibility on social media and I think this links in really well to medics being on social media Mm -hmm. because medics are kind of upheld to a different standard of, you know, in society, we're upheld to a different standard. So, you know, we can't have a criminal record, we have to be very careful about what we post online, we shouldn't be posting inside work, we should never post, you know, anything with patient details or in a clinical area. Um, and I think, in the rise of medical influences, this line has been blurred a little bit. Um, and I went to a really interesting talk recently, which was titled, and it was a medical education conference, but the people running it were all pretty Twitter famous. They were kind of the Mm Twitterati, and they were saying, um, the title of the talk was Social Media, Force for Good or Evil. And, one of the people on the panel—it was like a, it was essentially a, a panel of, of people talking, kind of like a debate—and mm-hmm. um, it was run in a in a really interesting way because they were taking questions from the audience um, as kind of a live stream and then answering them and then talking about them amongst um, themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and somebody said, "You know, don't you think that using social media as a doctor can be seen as unprofessional?" And um, one of the panel members said, "Well, actually, social media in itself is not unprofessional." Unfortunately, it's the people that use it that are and it's probably you that's being unprofessional and it's not the platform that's to blame. Mm-hmm. Um, which I thought was really interesting. Um, yeah. because I think he's probably right. But you know, when when do people take the accountability? Like it's yeah.
2: Yeah, this is so interesting. Okay, I want to talk about a particular TikTok that went really viral a few months ago. So as I said, I think a little bit earlier in this conversation, TikTok has really opened the floodgates for like doctors on social media. I know mm-hmm. you guys mentioned Instagram. You've seen a lot of Instagram, um, Instagram doctor or Instagram medical influencers, should we call them? I need a I need a phrase mm-hmm. for medical influencers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> doc talk is is a massive thing and this idea of kind of dispensing medical advice or diagnosing mm-hmm. or sharing tips and tricks through kind of snappy point pointing yes. at catchphrases as they appear or set to trending tracks or kind of dancing yeah. whilst um doing this that i think tiktok's really kind of opened the floodgates for that in the past year um and in particular these viral tiktoks where medical professionals openly discuss the details of various cases that they're working on. I'm like, oh, yeah. I have a client today who did this, or I've never seen an instance of of this uh, particular kind of disease or mm. like symptoms or whatever. Um, I'm sorry, you're gonna have to correct me when I use the wrong- No, um, no, you go ahead. <laughs> not, this is about um, And um, there was a therapist uh, called at SideQuest Therapy, um, who a couple of months ago did, recorded a short kind of off the cuff TikTok to camera, really casual as, as the style is, um, complaining about her, about her patients coming in and trauma dumping on her. And I, trauma dumping, I, this is not a term I was familiar with, but trauma dumping is apparently when you, I don't think it's a pseudo medical term, you, uh, kind of Go up to someone and and they ask them kind of you know how are you and then you just kind of offload all of your like emotional baggage onto them and mm. you kind of get you know you get in really really deep into the and then you kind of walk away and then you you've left them with the the weight of everything that you've just told them, and this TikTok went viral on Twitter of mm. people saying how can how can you complain about your client trauma dumping when you're a therapist like that is literally yeah. your that job. was
0: literally my first thought I, I know yeah. that's probably bad and the yeah. second
2: thought is. And, ma- and then the second tweet that went really viral of screen uh, screen sharing this this TikTok said, imagine being this person's patient yeah. and logging on to TikTok and seeing your therapist complaining about you trauma dumping huh. on them. Yeah. yeah like what what an absolutely psychologically scarring That's experience great. Of course. And it yeah, just yeah. It, obviously it, it you know, her account was deleted. There was a kind of make interview where she tried to explain what she was doing. She said, Oh, she was joking, blah blah blah. But yeah. it just really spoke to the way in which TikTok has become this kind of almost like cesspit for medical information, mm. disinformation, misinformation, yeah. um oversharing, self-diagnosis. People love to throw yeah. around all these kind of terms. There's a lot of therapy speak, you know, gaslighting, yeah. dissociation, yeah. trauma. People love to kind of almost medicalize uh the yeah. discourse on TikTok. And and um, yeah, I just it's it's really interesting. Mm. I think TikTok is is such a um Petri
1: dish for this to use a <laughs> <I> love that <laughs> term. <laughs> great, great. Where does just where does it end? Like Mads was saying about accountability. Like if you're putting yourself out there as a as a doctor or a nurse or someone in the medical profession on a social media platform, be it TikTok, Instagram, and you're putting yourself up there as a person with knowledge or with some semblance of authority. What what happens if someone decides they want to come to you for advice or so they go into your direct messages on Instagram say and say I've been having xyz symptoms say that lots of people decide to do that and that person then misses can't reply to all of those messages and, and and misses one and it's something that turns out to be you know where where is the line drawn between this sort of extra out extracurricular out of work work where how is that being regulated how can that you know I I think you're just opening yourself up to just a nightmare waiting to happen aren't you of of people then saying well I direct messaged this doctor on Instagram two months ago and they never got back to me and now I've been to see my GP and it's turned out to be something horrible Mm. and then and then can you be like like can you be liable for putting yourself out there as a doctor
0: on Instagram or on Twitter or on whatever. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Then, it's really dangerous water. It's yeah, really, really dangerous water. Question.
2: What is the official, as you guys are both employed by the NHS, right? Or are you employed by... Yeah. Yes.
0: yes, So, yes. but we are regulated by the general medical council so the GMC okay that's like our regulating body essentially and they hold us to standards that we have to fulfill as doctors yeah so each year we have a validation process so we have an appraisal and that makes sure that we're meeting certain competencies and that we're accurate that we're basically reflecting on our practice there's loads of different domains um and, and one of those is you know continuous reflection on our practice so we have to declare any incidents anything that went wrong reflect you know show that we've learned from it show that we reflected upon it um and also we have to meet certain levels of competency. Like we have to show that we're up to date with our skills, you know, that we've clerked a number of patients, Um, or if you have a job that isn't um clinical, that you're still meeting those competencies. And essentially, you know, are is this doctor year upon year fit to retain the medical license Um, and fit to continue practicing? And, you know, one of those is, and one of the most important ones is confidentiality. And I, I just think it's such, such dangerous water to get into, not only, you know, because I think if you, talk, if you say, for example, I saw patient X and they had a really rare, interesting disease. And I'm going to I'm going to convey this all over social media. A really one person like someone could so easily locate you and say this doctor works at this practice. They work in this hospital. And, um, you know, this is they can so easily be like, oh, that was my mom because it's a rare disease. So how many other people are going to have it? Probably not very many. And I think that's a really, really, I, I personally do think that is quite an unprofessional thing to be doing. Yeah. Um, and even when, you know, like Emily and I are both still quite junior doctors, but I don't know about you, Em, but I get a lot of friends and family messaging me about medical problems. Um, yeah. And and I, you know, and it's really difficult because obviously, you you know, well, one of the first things is that you can't prescribe or, or treat um, friends or family. So along that vein, I, always say to them although it seems like I'm being it might be that I'm like might come across that I'm being lazy or that I don't want to help them but um, but actually, I say, you know, you really need to go see your own doctor. And the reasons that I say that is because I think that they need to have someone objective that doesn't have an emotional connection to them. That's important. Um, and and also they need to be properly, you know, someone needs to take a proper thorough history, someone objective that they don't feel embarrassed about divulging certain things which might be relevant to their medical history. They need to examine them, you know, and that's the way that you conduct medical practice and that's the way that you diagnose someone you have to take a history you have to examine them you have to do investigations and you should not be doing that to a friend or a member of your family and that's the reason that I I don't I always say to them you need to speak to your own doctor um yeah
1: I've just yeah. had a quick look because
0: um
1: so the as Mad said the GMC regulators and they have guidance on all sorts of things, and they also have guidance on doctors' use of social media. Okay, I would love. Yeah, let's let's hear yeah. this. this so I I just, I've hear. just got it up. It it doesn't sort of say that you can't. It, it says at one point that you, if you identify yourself as a doctor in publicly publicly accessible social media, you should identify yourself by name. So you shouldn't go yeah. under a pseudonym. You have to say hey, mm-hmm. you who know, this is me. I'm you know Dr Emily. You know. Yeah. Accept- because because any material written by an author who represents himself as a doctor is likely to be taken trust. May reasonably be taken to represent the views of the whole profession. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, that's their backup for that. Um, it sort of says that, you know, quite succinctly describes what we've talked about so far. Using social media has blurred the boundaries between public and private life. And online information can be easily accessed by others and that we should be aware of the privacy settings on all of our social medias. It doesn't say we have to have them... Mm-hmm private, um, it just says that we have to know know what they are because social media can't guarantee confidentiality, whether privacy settings are in place. Patients, your employer, potential employers might be able to access your per- personal information. Once information is mm-hmm. published online, it can be difficult to remove. It does acknowledge that there's doctor's use of social media can benefit patient care by engaging people in public health discussions, mm-hmm. establishing national and international professional networks, and facilitating patients access to information so breaking down those boundaries for people to be able to access information about healthcare. so that's the benefit but then it says um it also create risks because it blurs social and professional boundaries so what I take from that is that we have to have a professional boundary between us and our patients which is exactly what Mads was just saying with friends and family and if it's on social media it's inherently a social relationship a social bound you know boundary and that's not you can't have that professional boundary if it's through social media which sort of links kind of back to what you were saying about is social media unprofessional as a as a doctor or not it's it's a really interesting conversation isn't it interestingly this one this bit says if a patient contacts you about their care or other professional matters through your private profile you should indicate you cannot mix social and professional relationships and where appropriate, direct them to your professional profile. So it's not like saying that that does not happen in the TikTok
2: comments where people respond to TikTok comments mm-hmm. saying, "Here's my here's my breakdown of this situation." Mm-hmm. Yeah, really. Yeah, but it. that shouldn't
0: that really shouldn't be happening. And you know, if you're a doctor, then you have a duty to be aware of like the GMC guidelines. You know, that is that you know, you take an oath at the end of medical school when you graduate that you have to be aware of these things. And so ignorance, like, it's not it's not really an excuse I might sound like really like oh like I'm a stickler for the rules but I think in this particular cycle you, like you it's have to be yeah no, like no, no, you're no, you held in a position of trust by society and that is a privilege and I think people that take advantage of that or claim that they're ign- ignorant ignorant to that like it's just not good enough and I would expect more from my own health professional
2: yeah 100 yeah, percent. there's also a bit of a, a kind of slippery collapse between um, the fact that people view influencers as figures of authority anyway, you would look up to an influencer mm-hmm. for guidance around, you know, your, every other aspect of your lifestyle, maybe your fitness, maybe what you're eating, Maybe you know, maybe you follow a food influencer for what you eat. Um, you follow like an interiors influencer for how to decorate your house and what to do with mm-hmm. your mortgage. And you maybe follow a personal finances influencer. And mm-hmm. so actually when someone's self-styling as a medical influencer, as, from an audience's perspective, you see nothing untoward about, mm-hmm. really? about, putting that person on a pedestal and unfortunately because both doctors have you know authority and influencers have authority the kind of doctor influencer is a figure of real real authority because you've got the the title doctor and a platform of you know a million people so therefore i'm going to trust everything that you say um and so it can be very very easy to 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 not have those kind of conversations that you guys from the other side are having mm-hmm. around, you know, how do mm-hmm. I handle this responsibly and what, yeah. what is a personal
0: reputation versus a, a, a public reputation, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think some of it is, so in a, in a more positive light, because I feel like I've been a little bit negative recently, I think in a more positive light, things like, you know, doctors promoting cervical screening for women um, you know, encouraging people to check their breasts once a month um, on the first of each month. I think that's that's a very good use of this platform that they have and this kind of twined position of trust of both being a doctor and an influencer. Um, and I think, you know, um, Dr. Alex George recently post like, posted his pill um, mm-hmm. being like, you know, I take um, an antidepressant. And I think he he's he's been an example of a really really positively influential uh, doctor influencer um mm. and so much so that Boris Johnson actually gave him you know youth ambassador for mental health like he gave him an official government position um yeah. and and i think he's been incredibly influential influential in kind of shifting the stigma away from things like depression and and things like suicide and so i think that's really important um and yeah yeah yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Oh, I just find it so also interesting because it's an it's just new, isn't it? So yeah, this medical influencer doctors on TikTok thing is is new. But what about those doctors who have been on like morning breakfast TV shows for years, like Dr. Hillary, who was on you mm. know DMTV when we were kids, you know, providing medical advice on on you know morning news shows every day for. 25 years and however everything on broadcast is subject to
2: like broadcast mm. regulations yeah. which social media isn't so there is oh. there are other levels of like mm. safety there the network oh, is responsible for the content you know? that's interesting, yeah.
1: interesting. because then we need you in this conversation <laughs> I know. well because they become famous and they end up on dancing on ice and strictly come dancing because we see them as celebrities just like everyone else yeah. you know, on a reality tv show so the idea of having someone I mean it's just different it's traditional media versus social media isn't it it's the way that everything changes and but there is this real negativeness on social media influences which we've sort of talked about
2: yeah you make a really good point that actually the idea of the like celebrity doctor is nothing Mm -hmm. new um even like I'm just thinking I saw an advert the other day really weirdly an advert featuring Rasputin and I was like oh my god the OG medical influencer (laughs) he's like (laughs) providing providing medical services to the court of king I don't know whatever his name is um yeah this this idea of and and also like in medieval times you know you'd you'd have like the doctor to the king or whatever there's there's this idea of like status in being a kind of um in being a kind of medical professional there's an idea Mm. of like you are elevated or you're you know people look up to you because you're Mm. kind of Uh, you have some kind of access and some understanding which obviously is is to be respected and it's just the way that that then that sense of status then transposes onto a new architecture for organizing social relations Mm -hmm. and it just it's just the kind of intersection of those things which maybe is is a bit kind of is a bit dodgy um but yeah it's it's interesting I think um the other thing I would say about Dr George you um just uh, is it Dr Alex George how do you say Dr Alex or Dr George. i feel like oh. he goes by dr alex dr alex okay but
1: it professionally would be dr george dr george okay
2: dr alex george just okay. to hedge my bets. um i found that appointment really interesting mm-hmm. uh because and i'm going to say something possibly a little bit more critical um and it's not to say that i don't the disclaimer, it's not to say that I don't think the work of raising awareness around serious mental health problems, not just kind of mm-hmm. and generalised anxiety, which I feel like is no longer taboo, um, yeah. uh, you know, raising uh, concerns around suicide and, and normalising conversations like that. Absolutely fantastic work to be commended. Mm-hmm. No, no notes. Um, but interesting that the Conservative government choose to promote and elect these kind of influencer Uh, influencer medics or influencer doctors um, against a backdrop in which they are kind of cutting funding to the NHS and um it feels to yeah. me like the rise of the medical influencer links into a broader shift from viewing the NHS as this like big institution of of lots of people that requires systemic levels of funding and treating as a kind of public good and a public body um shifting yeah. attention from it as as a kind of institution to a series of kind of heroic individuals who we can kind of lionize and you know, clap for carers and mm-hmm. um, amazing individuals like Alex George um it's a really helpful narrative when you're trying to uh defund a large institution like that to kind of point Mm. to the individuals that make up make it up rather than the kind of collective body yeah um so i feel like there's potentially something there in the rise of the medical influencer in the way that the medical influencer is being embraced by a conservative establishment um Mm. which isn't to say that the work that um Dr. Alex is doing is is not fantastic. That's obviously great. And I think a really mm-hmm. forward thinking approach to actually elect someone yeah. who, can, who can work closely and who can reach like much better audiences than yeah. kind of leaflets or I don't know, the traditional yeah. ways of, um, of advertising. Yeah.
1: yeah, it's a really interesting point. Um, I guess a big sort of a, a general theme um, of everything that we've talked about in the in the last sort of forty-five minutes or so, it's been about balance, and that's sort of going right back to the start. Livy, you said that there's a shift, there's a there's a, a real disparity between either influences are good or influences are bad, and when you were writing your book, you were trying to keep a balance. Or the writers that you respected um, in in your industry were ones that had balance to their work of didn't, not falling into sort of one camp or the other, or um, you know, the the diff the balance between influencers in COVID, some some good things coming out of it, and some negative things coming out of it. And we've we've talked about towing that line and the balance so out. I'd say that's the sort of main theme that we've had in our conversation so far. How did you keep the balance when you were writing your book of not falling into influencer good, influencers are good or influencers are bad?
2: Um, It's a really good question. Um, I think it was a case of making sure that um, you're always searching out counter narratives for anything that you have a hunch about or anything. If I was setting out um, to investigate something with a preconception, i wasn't allowing my research just to back up whatever it was that i was hypothesizing before i entered the space yeah. so a lot of things in the book you can see i'm actually quite uh, blunt about addressing that and saying you know going into this experience i had assumed this and actually my mind's been changed in this way or this fulfilled my expectation but this didn't so in a way it's kind of showing you working and just being really really honest and open about um what you thought, what you thought you were going to find, and then what you actually found. Yeah. Um, and then also when interviewing people to make sure that um, if you know someone is is claiming something, then I'm always trying to find someone who would counter that narrative or who would um, have an alternative perspective and experience. Um, I'm only you know one person with very limited uh, worldview, you know, as as only one person can be. So um, making sure that you have a real like diversity of sources when you're. Um, when you're kind of constructing the piece as well, I think is really important. So I made sure that I was um, getting a range of people, you know, mega influencers with tens of millions of followers, micro influencers with around 500 to 1,000 who are just trying to make it, um, kind of more um, more lifestyle influencers, and then kind of anti-influencers. I spoke to some like anti-capitalist influencers um, who were kind of trying to dismantle the system. Um, so yeah, a real like trying to make sure that there's always, I guess, like two sides to the story is is yeah. a kind of cliched expression, but Um, yeah just being really uh, having a lot of integrity when it comes to planning out your interviews and sources Um, and I think what helped that is that the book there are some things that the book kind of set out to claim and prove but a lot of it is actually just quite exploratory um, exploratory exploratory Um, and so it's more of a kind of weird and wonderful journey through the world of influence than me setting out to lay out a grand thesis about influences RX. Yeah. Um, and so I think that really helps when you're writing to to be able to meander between things without feeling like you're, you know, you're encountering something that's conflicting with your worldview. So either you have to discredit it
1: or ignore yeah. it. But a lot of planning, I I, I imagine that's what I've got from that answer. So a lot of <laughs> yeah. a lot of planning involved to make sure that you are representing both sides of the of the coin
2: yeah 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 it was it was yeah a lot of a lot of planning but hopefully hopefully it's come off I was most interested in the reaction not from critics reviewers etc but actually Mm. from influencers that's Mm -hmm. probably who I most care about the reaction to the book from yeah Um, so yeah it's been been interesting
0: I met with Livy probably two years ago we went for that pub lunch didn't we and you were telling me about all the research you were doing and this is far before she started writing it and there have honestly been years of research that have gone into this book I have seen it and she went to a influencer boot camp um, (laughs) and immersed herself in it which I thought was entirely commendable but so so interesting Um, and then when I read the book I was like wow like this has really come together like this makes so much sense Um, (laughs) but it just goes to show again you know the amount of work that goes into something which seemingly seems like oh i I wrote a book but actually like there's been years and years of research and like effort that's gone into this and it's it's really cool I don't have another word for it it's really really cool.
2: Yeah I'm in a lucky position that my Professionally, I was involved with the influencer industry for the last five years, so I have a kind of cumulative knowledge of the changing of the landscape in that in that duration. And then I was able to add to that personal experiences, like I was Mm
0: -hmm. a kind of
2: OG Tumblr girl. I loved messing around on the internet when I was younger. Um, Yeah, there's that kind of it's that thing that we were talking about at the beginning that you know we are that generation that's grown up with the internet. So I was able to quite easily interweave like personal experiences with with the more formal uh, gonzo
0: journalism, someone described it as me going off to influencer boot camps and all that kind of thing. Interesting, very interesting. But I think a lot of people, especially those in that industry will probably be grateful to you for you know, um, educating the public and kind of disrupting people's preconceived views of influencing as a job um, and not as a hobby. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. So I guess just to conclude um, our podcast and thank you so much for all of these amazing discussions. Um, I feel like we've both learned so much, um, but the kind of overarching theme that our podcast tends to pertain to is, is that of role modelling um, and mentorship. And I suppose kind of, you know, it, the concept of being an influencer is that inherently you are, you are a role model, but on a much, much larger scale. So if you had advice for somebody that was just starting out as, as you say, a micro influencer, what what advice would you give um, to kind of a new starter, someone that's just trying to make a mark in this industry?
2: That's a good question. Um, I would say if you are just setting out in... 2021 or 2022 as a new year's resolution um the first thing you should do is be really clear on your aims and objectives do you have a kind of plan in place um do you have an idea of what you want to do rather than just kind of starting to uh blog about anything uh you'll find it quite hard you kind of risk facing burnout if you do that um so being clear about your aims and objectives and ancillary to that kind of establishing your boundaries around social media. What are you gonna be uh, sharing? What won't you be sharing? Which platforms will be, you be on? Making sure you're giving yourself some time off as well because social media is 24 is um, seven. And then the final thing I'd say is just um, a bit more of a kind of philosophical thing. Um, I would say, don't get into it for the fame. The fame should be the kind of byproduct of whatever it is that you're interested in talking about on the internet um whether that's kind of food being a doctor uh yeah being a lifestyle influencer um that should be the kind of primary reason why you're going into it and then if it takes off great and if it doesn't then you've built a small community around something you're interested in
1: amazing thank you so much for, for that answer Liv, and for your for your for your discussion and debate um on the on the podcast i have absolutely loved having you on Thank you so it's much for having crazy. me. I've had such
2: a good time.